This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane, and I would like to say a big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy, especially Dr. Doolittle. He's always so nice to us, but I did give him 50 bucks before he came in. So anyway, <laughs> in the studio with me is Dr. Ellie. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to have a climatologist in the in the booth. It's always good to have a climatologist in the booth. Yeah, I mean, We're very useful people. They're breeding like rabbits. <laughs> uh, and another one, Dr. Linden. What's better than one climatologist? Two climatologists. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, we can break you up with Dr. Ray, chemical engineer. I feel, like, morning, I feel like maybe I had a wrong career choice. <laughs> yeah, no, you did not. <laughs> uh, have you seen how depressed these two usually are when they came in? <laughs> Why don't you people listen to us? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much our life. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. hard to find some happy yeah. news to bring in I on know. a Sunday. And then we get Dr. Ewan in, an ecologist, who says, Why don't you listen to them? You're not listening to me either. It's not. It's all bad. But anyway, we, we Let's bring the tone. Of the yeah, show we up smile about. We smile about. Uh, now I we're work uh, on chocolate. <laughs> we've yeah. got we got, we got a couple of guests uh, coming in soon, but we're going to start off with some news. And uh, Dr. Linden, we'll start with you. You've been looking at hippos. I have. Yes. Yeah. So I came across a story this week, Dr. Shane, and it was very interesting. But I'm glad that I wasn't reading it when I was having breakfast because it's a little bit gross. So a story takes place in East Africa, in between Kenya and Tanzania, on the Mara mm-hmm. River. Right, and the people there noticed that every time the well, occasionally when the river rose quickly, these dead fish would rush up on the riverbank, up to thousands of dead fishes along the bank of the river. Now, the local rangers seemed to think that this was because of pesticides from farms uh, upstream, but a new paper that's come out of Nature Communications this week has found that it's not pesticides; it is hippo poo, Mm. the old hippo poop, killing these. So, hippo poo can kill a fish. Hippo poop can kill a fish. Is, it like right. a, is that an impact death? So, I was going to say, is this like one poo from one hippo that's just <laughs> Let like me talk wiping that's out right. all these yeah. fish? It's like right. just an unlucky Epic fish swimming by. Like, really? <laughs> They're just bullet poops. No, that's not how it works at all. So, they studied this about 100 kilometre stretch of the river, and there are about 6,000 hippopotami that live on this river. And in during the night, they'll go out and graze, and then during the day, they come to the river to keep cool and they deposit about 4,800 kilograms <gasps> of waste per day in that, this river. What's, what's that in cars? Oh my goodness. 4,800 kilograms. Well, that's, that's ton, almost five tons. So yeah, yeah that's, about that's a, a few about tons. A car. Uh, five yeah. cars per, I reckon. And they generally, <laughs> they tend to clump Even together as one. well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Five car loads as opposed a lot, to one car load. A lot. And yeah, if you yeah. want to measure it in cars, if you want to measure it in bags of oranges, it's a lot. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and they generally clump together as well. So we've got these hippo pools where they would just deliver their waste in the river yeah. and then it will fall to the <clears> bottom <throat> of the river where it would joyfully be eaten by bacteria, right? right. Because it's a good, oh, yeah. really good source of nutrients. But to do their joyful eating, the bacteria need oxygen, which they will take from the water above oh. them. So what you get is this layer of waste at the bottom of the river and then this layer of bottom water that's very low in oxygen. You get an influx of water through the system from rainfall or whatever and then all of a sudden you're mixing, mixing this poop and low oxygen water downstream. Fish okay. suffocate. Dead fish. So fish it's not suffocate. like hippo poo's particularly acidic or something. No, I like- mean it does have some other bits in yeah. it but yeah, it's mainly okay. the, the um, decrease in oxygen yeah. that is so killing it's... these fish. So these researchers, it was a husband and wife team from the US, they kind of wanted a few different tests to check their hypothesis. So they sent a remote control boat in to these hippo pools because you wouldn't go in there 
on your own. Hippos are notoriously nasty. Nasty. Yeah. So they sent a remote control boat in to measure the properties of the water, and they did some water sampling, and they also kind of reconstructed a situate the same situation in another part of the river where they didn't have hippopotami, and they built a dam, and then they poured in a bunch of hippo poo filled water above the dam, let the dam wall go, and then measured to see what would happen. And they, it's it's the combination. It's this water, low in oxygen, and the poop, and one of the interesting findings of this study, or what they said in the conclusions, was that this process, there's nothing really unnatural about it. It's not a human-influenced mm, mm. process. Yeah. I mean, changes in the water cycle in the future might mean different frequencies of low water versus high water, but this is a natural part of the ecosystem, which mm. kind of has impl- implications for what you think of as a healthy waterway. Mm. Like these dead fish are part of the process too. The poo is natural. It's good for nutrients. The carcasses are natural, even if it doesn't look that natural, which so I just thought was interesting. Is this something that's been happening for a while? Because yeah. you said they just noticed it, but no, I would no, have thought has, this would have well, been going on for quite what they a while, said was unless that, there's a sudden influx of hippos in w- there. What they said was that if the fish like wash up on the shore, they don't last for very long, because mm. there's a lot of other things that like to eat fish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if yeah. you're not there quickly, yeah. you miss it. And it's not biblical? No. No, no not Because you can imagine this, you know, in times gone by, mm. we'd have a biblical context. Mm. Yeah, that's true. And people. actually, when there were bigger megafauna around, I mean, it might mm. have happened in a larger context. You've got lots more poo or more carcasses falling yeah. in the river could could affect it as well. I still can't get over the sheer amount. Mm-hmm. It's disturbing. <laughs> what are those hippos eating? Jesus. Well, we, we don't know how to manage rivers. We don't... I mean, we a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how the Mississippi, the... For our lives, 160 years, the managing the Mississippi mm. was kind of mismanagement. And one of the things that was causing was hypoxia <coughs> unnaturally. Mm. This just happens naturally. It's Hippos are just big and mean. Amazing creatures. Pretty awesome, though. Amazing creatures. Yeah. You, know, you see them and you see the power. Wow. Anyway, uh, thanks, Dr. Linden. <laughs> You're that, welcome. Uh, just raising and, uh, the tone of your Sunday yeah, morning. <laughs> enjoy your, your brunch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> enjoy that dial, everybody. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, oh. <laughs> Dr. Ray. <laughs> so uh, I, have a, I have a story that, well, it's not about poo, but it's also not necessarily <laughs> local to Melbourne because it's about ice skating, unless you go in the indoor ring. <laughs> but this is how ice skating works. So normally when we think, well, ice skating, we're able to skate around because of low friction. For some of us, that's like terrible memories. The one time I tried ice skating as an adult, you know, after the first couple times, people stopped skating over to say, are you okay? That looked like it really hurt when you fell down. (laughs) Uh, um, And and then I spent the next hour doing that. But (laughs) See, I've I've never tried ice skating because I was so bad at normal skating. I figured this has just got to be worse and there's a chance of a severed finger. So, you know, like, pass. Yeah, well, it, it, it is worse. <laughs> um, anyhow, so clearly there's some skill there. Um, but uh, how, how ice skating works, you think we all know it has low friction. We all know ice is slippery. What this study actually found in the Journal of Physical Chemistry uh, by the University of Amsterdam was why. And it's not what you think. Normally we think ice skates cause pressure on the ice. They melt that little layer from that higher pressure. And that's what gives us the lubrication to reduce the friction. That's what I think every time I go ice skating. I'm just exactly. thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> you really? Because I was thinking, oh, this is going to hurt yeah. when I fall. <laughs> Such a stirrer. Um, <laughs> but it's not actually that. It's actually, there's no melting. It, it, so these researchers looked at friction on ice from about minus 100 up to about 0 C, where ice skating's at about minus 7 C. And there's not, and they actually did both friction measurements and then modeled with the molecules too for molecular dynamics. And it's not melting. Mm. The, we've already known for a long time the top surface layer of a solid 
those molecules are still solids. They're chemically bonded to the other molecules, but they have more mobility. They, are, they effectively diffuse around more. Like a slushy. Well, sort of. Think of it as if a molecule is tethered to four different other molecules, it might only be tethered to three. Okay. So yeah. it can diffuse around a little faster, but it's still a solid. And actually what they found with ice was kind of at about minus 7C, the surface mobility of the water molecules actually of the ice molecules increases. So they're mm -hmm. able to, to, to move around faster, and that's actually what contributes to the friction. But is that sort of a semi-melting? Well, it's not actually melting. So melting would require for water, there's no uh, coordination of that molecule, water molecule, with the other ones that's ah, long-lived. I mean, okay. in water we have hydrogen bonding, which is why water boils at such a high temperature. But a solid means the mobility of those molecules, it can't move around and rotate freely the way it would in a liquid. So it's tempted to say, oh, it's liquid-like. But it's not. And, and it's not heating because then they checked four orders of magnitude on velocity and didn't see a functional change in the behavior of the friction. So it's not from local heating that's actually causing this. It's just the fact that the molecules can move around. They have a little bit more mobility. And it, it, and it, it not only helps lubricate, but it also helps make it atomically smooth. And we already know smooth surfaces have way less friction. And, and so it's not actually... And if you... If the molecules have less mobility, as it goes from like minus 7 to minus 50, friction goes up, and it goes up in a way that you'd expect based on surface mobility. Mm. So, so does that mean there's like an optimum temperature yeah, for, that's what I was thinking for the, that speed skating at the Olympics? They want to have the ice at, you know, minus 11 oh. degrees is going to give you... 0.001 of a, a second faster? good question, actually, because it is, like, minus 7 was just what they keep rings mm, at, but mm. there is this balance between mobility and, and, and it exponentially grows changes with temperature. So it might be, like, you're right, 11 because, or, or maybe it's, maybe it's, it's 4 because it, it's this whether or not you want mm. it seamlessly versus speed skaters want some traction, mm -hmm. and there's got to be this balance between friction. That's a brilliant question. And I'm confused as to how, if there is no melting how the idea that it was melting has propagated for so long. I mean... Well, probably if, if you just run your hand across the mm -hmm. ice, the temperature of your hand oh, will yeah. instantaneously melt it and it'll feel wet. Mm. And so, yeah, of course it's yeah. melting. Like there's and a there's a logical sort of test there for you yeah. to do that, that says, yeah. yes, it's melting. So this wasn't in the article, but do you guys know there's synthetic ice rings? Synthetic ice synthetic, rings? It's called synth ice. And it's not... It's not, it's not <laughs> is it, it like a plastic or something? It, it is a polymer. And what they find is is that it's a low-friction polymer. They're very smooth. And, and you don't get as effortlessly gliding. And also skates wear down because it's not quite mm. as slippery as mm. ice. But that's actually consistent with that because polymers... Their surface layer, since it's a much bigger molecule, would diffuse much more slowly. Mm. Yeah, now, that's yeah, yeah. my extrapolation. They didn't talk about synthetic ice, mm. but, but you can actually skate on surfaces that don't have water and don't melt. Mm. Mm. So this idea that the water has to be there is... Beyond the, beyond the temperature, though, it sounds like some people should be redesigning skates. I think so. Yeah. Mm. Because if they're, you know, they're designed under a certain understanding. If you design them based on a different understanding of the surface, mm. then they might look complete. The winged keel of, of skates. <laughs> you never know. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Thank you, Dr. Ray. Uh, now, I, I found something that uh, I, I thought this was absolutely fascinating. I hadn't thought about this this way. Um, I like it when you get a couple of physics people and you, you get them working on biological problems, how they do things completely differently. But, you like um, that. I like that. <laughs> I did say I like that. Um, but there's a guy named Alex Savchenko, who is uh, he's a researcher at the Department of Pediatrics in the University of California, San Diego's medical school. And he's been working on a new way to test 
um, artificial, sort of artificially generated heart cells. So this is, you, you know, you grab some skin cells, you reverse them back into their pluripotent stem cell phase so that you can Wait, then make those pluripotent. cells. Yeah, so these are, these are cells that can turn into anything. Okay, okay? You. So you force them back and you say, you're no longer going to be a skin cell. I can make you into any sort of cell. And then you grow them into heart cells. Now, what happens is a lot of people do this and they test these in Petri dishes that are made of plastic or glass. The problem is... Heart cells aren't in our bodies near plastic or glass, and plastic and glass are insulators, whereas heart cells very specifically are cells that conduct electricity and need to be in an electrically, you know, interesting environment to do real testing on. So you could argue that doing these things in in plastic and glass doesn't really work very well. There are also some uh, particular heart medications that when they've trialled these medications, they're very specifically activated when heart cells are doing certain things. So, for example, when heart cells are in arrhythmia, so they're not beating properly, these medications activate at that point. So you're not going to be able to mimic that in a plastic dish. You need to mimic it in a real environment. What these guys from um, University of San Diego have been doing is growing the heart cells on graphene, which is you know this new material that everyone's really excited about. The good thing about graphene, of course, is it's conductive. Mm-hmm. The other thing about graphene is it's made of carbon, which means biologically not like plastic, like it's actually something that you know heart cells quite happily grow on. But then there's another cool part about graphene that people haven't really realised, and that is so you've got these heart cells, you want to make them beat. To make them beat, you put electricity on them and you get them to beat in sequence. Graphene generates electricity when exposed to light, which means if you had these heart cells sitting on a flat piece of, you know, a very atomically smooth piece of graphene and you shine a, f- a certain light on it, you can make them beat in sequence with the light. What? Yeah. So now if you think about this, this means that if I want to test a certain chemical on these heart cells, I could actually get the cells to beat at a certain frequency in a certain way based on an external light source just hitting this this surface. And I could say, well, you know, what does arrhythmia look like? Well, I send the light in in certain pulses. That's arrhythmia. How does this chemical work? Oh, let's ramp it up a little bit. Let's make the cells work a bit more poorly than normal. Let's test the chemicals then. And do all of this as though it was in the body, having these really detailed effects of of beating and so forth for heart cells, just with the external light source. So I'm imagining this happening on a clump of cells that sort of... Like mm. half a heart. Is that the same? Is no. that the right scale we're working at? We're we no, working at no, like two or actually, three cells. Well, it's, it'd, be, it'd be thousands of cells, but, you know, if you think of how small the cells are, like mm. that's still a very small surface. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's very thin, it's very small, and, and you can watch them quite readily. Well, so is there that much of an advantage of that over just using an electrode and putting a voltage signal in to simulate arrhythmia? Yeah, the, the, so the main thing is the, the subsurface. So each of the cells is connected to the the graphene itself or sitting on the graphene so it's being directly stimulated and so what you want to be able to do is stimulate all the cells in sequence and that's quite hard to do actually like so it's, it's un- not as easy as you might un- think unlike gold or gold or platinum electrode you get a lot of extracellular material in between the cell and the, the electrode or? and the thing is is it's harder to do you've got to remember you don't find gold in the body Right. So yeah. as soon as you use a material that these cells do not like being around, you change the conditions of the test. Okay. So then it's not relevant biologically, and you, you don't want to put large 
chunks of gold in, in the body or any other metal for that matter. Um, whereas with this, this is a biocompatible material. So it's, it's really interesting. And, and, and it does the electrical work and it's optically controlled. So it's got all these different features that sort of say better than everything. See, Parent- I'm, I'm just imagining disco lights now. Yeah. These little cells like... Well, apparently when they first did this stuff and they brought a whole lot of people into into the room to see this and you know there's this light sort of place and people are just looking at it going no way <laughs> and they thought they thought it was some trick they actually a lot of the researchers who were first brought in to see it thought it was just some made up sort of scam trip that they'd done that was pretty cool so anyway um yeah graphene amazing material got a nobel prize three triple In the studio with us, we have our first two guests for today from the Trobe University, Associate Professor Andy Herries and his uh, student, I guess. Uh, still student? Yes. Uh, Richard Curtis. Uh, now, Andy is the head of the Department of Archaeology and History and uh, La Trobe Uni's Paleo Science Labs. I just love the word paleoscience. It sounds cool. It sounds like the stuff I wanted to do, but then I grew up and chose a different path. Now, Andy, I want to start with you because you guys are working on the sort of the the origin of species in a sense, aren't you? Like the very early stuff of how we how we ended up being the the last human species around. Is that is that sort of the the guts of it? Yeah, I mean, my research lab covers pretty much the last three million, four million years of evolution. So we do everything from the beginning of our genus Homo, mm-hmm. the beginnings of like who we are, something that looks more human as opposed to something that's looking more ape-like, right. um, all the way through to the more recent times, which is, yeah, this unusual situation where this is the only time in really Earth's sort of uh, history that we know of where where there's only one single human species left. Hmm. So 25,000 years ago, the Neanderthals are obviously wandering around Europe and 75,000, you had this sort of strange, um, the, the hobbit, as they call it, Homo floresiensis, in Indonesia. Um, and we're finding more and more. We were, my lab was involved with dating um, a human species called Homo naledi recently, which everybody thought was going to be 2 million years old, but it turned out to actually be 300, and, 300 to 200,000. Mm. So wandering around at the same time that our species homo sapiens evolved so do, do we have a good feel at this point of the sort of population numbers of these different species i mean did we massively outnumber the others or were we all sort of you know even stevens for a while it's incredibly difficult to tell there are more people studying the fossils than there are actual fossils, fossils themselves <laughs> um that. finding a, a hominid uh, what we a hominin hoff fossil an early human ancestor is incredibly rare um, it took me till about 2012, so I've been sort of doing this for about 20 years now, to actually physically pull one out of the ground myself. Right. Richard here came on a field school I run in South Africa and managed to pull out an entire cranium in one season. So <laughs> he's obviously a relatively lucky guy. Uh, what a bastard. You've got you to hate that, don't you? Yeah. Really smart-ass students so, well, my students spend an awful lot of time essentially disproving everything I've written in the past, so it's something you have to accept. <laughs> well, that's science. That's, that's science. That's science. That's the way that's science okay. works. Yeah. Now, Richard, let's let's talk about what you were doing because you were in. Um, now it was in the, a cave in in Africa. Is yeah, that, a Kenyan yeah. cave. Uh, tell, tell us. I mean, what 
why were you at that cave? I mean, what was, is this one of those ones where you hear about some of these sometimes where it just seems like all the paleontologists just, just hang around this cave because there's good stuff coming out and if you wait long enough, you'll, you'll get something good? Unfortunately, I didn't get to visit the cave myself, but the samples were transported to the TAL, which is the Australian Archaeomagnetism Laboratory. And that's where I ran, yeah, a whole bunch of enviromagnetic uh, analyses and reconstructed paleoclimate over about 78,000 years. Hmm. I'm just going to get you to move a little bit closer to the mic. Um, in term, so how do, you, how do you do that testing? So how do you determine the ages of these things? And am I, right, am I thinking right when I have this image of you with a little paintbrush, so that, you know, dusting things away? Or is this shovels and pickaxes? I mean, describe the scene. Um... No, it's nothing like that, unfortunately. So the, it's mo- the movies don't take Fluorescent it, lights, uh, <laughs> a Faraday cage is in the room, and I am. I had about 140 samples that I ran, I would have said, hundreds of hours of just very, I guess, thorough analyses and mm-hmm. just looking at, I guess, variability within the the mineralogy or the iron bearing sediments mm. so what, found so what, in the cave. What does the iron tell you? Like how does that how do you link the iron to the time frame? So you can't actually do direct dating with the method that I used. That's what we used radiocarbon as well as optically stimulated luminescence. But to tie them together, um, the best way is to essentially look at the grain size, the concentration and how that has varied over time because you need a closed system. If mm. you imagine yourself on an open landscape, the sediments that preserve will not be, I guess, in their primary context. So that's mm. why traditionally lakes and the Chinese Laws Plateau have I, traditionally been, I guess, studied greater. But caves are proving very fruitful and that's mm. what I did it, for my honours on. Is the basic rule the further you dig the further back you go or I mean are there geological processes and that that muck that up? There definitely are yeah we've got diagenetic issues which is essentially just I guess geological processes chemically altering the sediments and whatnot but that's when you push it a lot further back and Hmm. that's what my PhD is hoping Hmm. to do. Now now, you you were looking at the sorts of tools that um, you know some of our Mm -hmm. our cousins are yeah. Cousins are right. Well, I'm not sure if that's even right. You know, well, this this competing cave, this, this cave, they're modern modern humans. Modern humans. Modern humans. Point, so. um, now, what, I mean, when you looked at that, you, you saw some interesting scenarios with regards to how the tools evolved over time. I didn't do the tool part directly. It was a, a very uh, interdisciplinary uh, project. But um, what I can tell you is that. The latest Stone Age was thought to begin at around 40,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. So the, I guess the impact of this paper is we've pushed that back over 20,000 years. And um, the big change happened about 67, and it went from coarse, kind of larger, to these smaller, uh, smaller stone tools that were specialised, made into composite um, hunting devices. Mm. Due to a change in climate, possibly, but we can't unequivocally say that. So com- composite tools meaning more than one part, basically. Yes. So not just, not just a sharp rock, yeah, but a sharp a... rock with a handle or something of that nature. Yes. yes. So what do you think that says about the... Uh, the culture at the time. I mean, there's, you kind of think that there'd be not much to say about, oh, they've gone from using a rock to using a rock attached to a piece of wood, but actually mm. that must mean a lots of different things. It could be a change in the environment, so you've got a change of things available to you. It could be a change in brain development. It could be a change in what they were eating. 
what do you think is the most interesting finding of that maybe and if you yeah so i mean part of the issue is this sort of question of when do we know that we begin to become anatomically sort of like you know homo sapiens modern humans 300,000 odd years ago but the real question is right when do we start thinking that way when do we sort of cognitively become like we are today and thinking about all of the abstract things that we think about life after death and these sorts of things so um there's it was two competing models one was an idea that it sort of just literally sort of snapped overnight around sort of 40,000 years ago we see all this complex behavior in Europe and places like that and the other one is which is sort of beginning very much to take over now particularly with we get a lot of genetic research that has really changed the landscape in our area and so we can begin to understand that in actual fact a lot of these things are not like a giant like some form of revolution they're a gradual process and and ultimately this is sort of a story of that again it's sort of the story of complexity i mean most of these terms we use of early stone age middle stone age they were sort of made in the 20s mm. um to because they had no way of dating anything they didn't know how old anything was now we've got these really great methods that can put time frames to that and we're beginning to see that these transitions are complex and it's it's not about cultures it's about populations and and in this site really you know before People are often talking about people moving along coastlines, moving out of Africa, um, sort of, uh, you know, we know 100 and I was involved with a study where we looked at the oldest evidence for people exploiting the sea. And people have this sort of vision of modern humans that they're sort of these coastal people, whereas this is the first evidence we really have of people living in these tropical environments. And the interesting thing is that in about 78,000 years ago at the site, they're using the older technology. And around, there's this sort of, big sort of cold snap that happens, which is what sort of uh, Richard's able to show with the, the magnetics work. Um, and there's a big hiatus. And then as they come out of that, suddenly they're using this new technology, which is really small stone tools, probably set into wood. So it's a sort of uh, more, and, and it's, it's a whole host of things of showing how modern humans are able to adapt to all the range of environments that we do today. We, we occupy mm. every part of the globe. And this is a story about how have we used technology to be able to do that from heat treating stone tools so stone to make or rock to make stone tools engineering our own stone tools to exploit environments and this is another very good example of that ultimately mm. it's fascinating it's fascinating stuff so richard you said you did this during your honors year but now you're a phd candidate how does your phd fit into this story well it's essentially using this trying to push the method back that's essentially that in a nutshell and adding some another other analyses to make you know i guess multiple robust climatic proxies to hopefully shed light on the environmental context that i guess ultimately allowed our genus homo to come to fruition and then you know subsequently mm. homo sapiens to you know spread across the world. And when you look at these, you know, you mentioned the five sort of various mm. species around, how, um, how different was the technology that the various ones had that we've seen? I mean, is that, was that, do you think, one of the distinguishing reasons why, you know, we, we went on and some of the others died out? Was it that technological leap? Well, ultimately, we're still here because we're, we're good generalists. Mm, we're okay. good at, um, you know, changing to particular environments. Um, you know, the Neanderthals, you know, you often think of the word Neanderthal, you think of, you know, some sort of idiot sort of wandering <laughs> around, right. sort of hunching over. 
Um, you know, we now know that Neanderthals were very successful, you know, individuals, very successful group for a very long time. And ultimately, it just sort of got to a point that um, with changes in climate, you know, they were very adapted to cold climatic conditions. Right. And the problem with becoming a specialist, we have lots of evidence of this. I mean, the site I work at in South Africa, you know, we have what is probably the beginning of sort of our our genus there. But we also have this other species called Paranthropus robustus. And they've got these big, massive teeth and they've got like a big sort of crest across the top of their head where uh, the sort of chewing muscles and everything come through. They really specialised at doing a particular thing. Mm. And again, they were successful for successful for like a million years. But right. ultimately, it got to a point where they weren't able to adapt. They weren't able to change that situation. Our big story is often that we are able to make technology to help us in that situation. Mm. Um, I mean, we struggled to get into to Europe for a long time where Neanderthals were living, um, but we occupied, you know, a lot of the rest of the globe pretty rapidly. We now mm. know, you know, people had made it to Australia by 65,000 at least and mm. probably did that pretty rapidly, it suggests. So, mm. Well, it, it's, it's fascinating stuff, and I think it, it also uh, ties into when we look at all of the other species on the Earth at the moment and their adaptability and which ones will be able to handle rapid changes in climate and which ones won't. It's, a, it's about that, you know, the specialists will be in trouble because they can't move, and those that are more generalists will, or, you know, more adaptable will be... You know, less in trouble, but you know, still under threat. So, um, great stuff. Ha just quickly before we go, how much of the time with you guys is actually spent at the site versus back here doing analysis? Well, I mean, so I mean, we do. In this case, we did. Neither of us have actually been to the site mm. because um, they just sent us little bags of sediment that we were able to reconstruct yep. the sort of the climate from. Um, whereas we we do spend. You know, I'm off to South Africa, sort of June first for about a month. I sort right. of run a field school there and yeah. all the students come across. So um, at one point in my life, I was spending like eight, nine months a right. year in the field. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but being head of department these days, not quite yeah, so, yeah, not so much. So. <laughs> That's cool. Well, it, it's fascinating work and um, it's great having you guys in talking about this because we, um, we, we don't get a lot of people from your field in and you know, it's because there's not a lot you know you guys are almost extinct well not <laughs> well you know uh, we have one of the best archaeology programs just down the road so. i know it's, it's great <laughs> well thanks for coming in and uh, keep it up and i guess if people are interested they can look up uh, stuff on the archaeology and history website at latrobe university andy and richard great to have you on triple r three triple This is a science program. If you've accidentally tuned in, I'll give you about two seconds to change if you don't like science. No, just say if they like Good. science. Uh, we, we do have another guest in the studio. Dr. Augustin Schifrin is a chief investigator within the Fleet Centre. He's a senior lecturer in the School of Physics and Astronomy at Monash University. Augustin, welcome to Triple R. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Now, uh, you're working on some of these really tailored materials and so forth. And let, let's start, are you in the theory sort of element or are you making them? No, I'm on the experimental side. Oh, good. So yeah. I spend, well, my team spends most of their time in the lab. Yep. And, uh, yeah, we benefit from collaborations with theorists to yeah. try to understand what's going on. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes you have to work with those guys. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. It's, it's part tough. of the game. But yeah. you, I find if you, if you put a sandwich under their door and you wait a few hours, some stuff will come back out. Yeah. Is that how it works? <laughs> there's, a bit, there's a bit of that, yeah. <laughs> now, you're working on some of these really new materials, um, but yours in particular are based on sort of bioorganisms. So can you give us an idea of, like, what sort of bioorganisms have materials that are of interest to you? So that's a good question. It's a bit of a complex question. So 
I think we should think the way the way I like to think about it is that the most complex machines that we know mm-hmm. are actually bioorganisms. Right. Uh, yeah. We're able to achieve incredible functions, and we are very complex systems. Mm. And when we say when I say we, I also include plants right. and kind of bioorganisms. Now, one of the key or the um, the common threads of the systems is that everything happens at least at the fundamental level, at the nanoscale and mm-hmm. at the scale of single molecules. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating is that a lot of these molecules are uh, very similar. For example, if you look at a photosynthesis uh, in a plant, um, their plants are able to absorb light very efficiently and transform that into usable energy. Now, if you look now at the nanoscale, um, the systems that are responsible for that, or at least the first steps for that, are little molecules on the order of one to a few nanometers. And uh, when I say molecules, so they're, they're composed of carbon, and sometimes they even incorporate um, single metal atoms. Mm-hmm. Now, those, those molecular entities are quasi-identical to the molecules that, in the case of humans, are able to absorb gas molecules, for example, mm. oxygen, and exchange that. Right, yeah. So, and they're quasi-identical. The only thing that changes is just, instead of having magnesium, they have iron. Right, yeah. Uh, so we're trying to get inspired by by nature and use little molecules on the order of one nanometers, but to engineer and fabricate materials that could fulfill a, uh, a function. So answer a question for me that I've had for a long time, and that is biology just seems to be really good at this. And we seem to be, frankly, really average at this. Like our, our ability to reach the efficiencies that you talk about in photosynthesis and so forth, we just don't seem to be able to get there. But when you describe these simple molecular processes in plants and so forth, it seems like, well, why, why can't we mimic these? What's so hard about it? Um, that's a great question. Well, we, we are, we're trying to go uh, in that direction. And nature has the advantage of time, as mm-hmm. we heard maybe right, from yeah, our yeah. previous yeah. guests. So the, the, millions uh, of years. There's millions of years, right? We've been we, doing it for a few weeks. We've been doing it for, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> basically a few, yeah. a few decades. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So um, because of that high or of, of this time scale, systems became very complex. Mm. Uh, we are, bioorganisms are very complex. And for example, one, one example is that we're just recently to understand, or, or there are at least strong hints, that the reason why photosynthesis is so efficient in nature is that it seems, or, well, there's some controversy, but it seems that nature benefits from quantum mechanical phenomena. Right. And this has been discovered only in the last 10 years. So mm. we're still learning every day from this complex system. So I'm a physicist. I don't have a biology background. So I try to fragment these complex systems as much as possible. Mm. So we try to identify in these complex systems what are the, uh, the smallest entities that can fulfill a function. Right. Right. So this is really cool. And, and, and when you said photosynthesis and the complexity of the molecule, I was thinking of the advancements in cryo-electron microscopy where they can now visualize like an individual photosystem one, the protein they think is, is responsible for photosynthesis. And, and they say just the amazing complexity it has like a 10 arrays almost for, for interacting with light. So in a, in a practical sense, now after this analogy, I'm trying to understand what do you actually build on the nanoscale? Is it just a flat coating or what are you engineering? To what material, when you say engineering, what are you making as a material? So that's a good question. So we, we have a whole bunch of different avenues. Um, we are trying, for example, um, in one case to develop, we can call it coatings, 
based on organic molecules that will have the electronic properties. So when I say electronic properties where the quantum mechanical phenomena will dictate how electrons behave, that could be uh, used for solar cells. That's one avenue. The other avenue, and because of the whole playground that we have with chemistry, is to develop similar coatings, but that could result in uh, electronics devices. Mm. And uh, that's one of the uh, activities that we have in the, in the center of excellence. Um, because of the vast range of molecules we can play with, we can choose the uh, function we want to use and then play with different parameters. How um how scalable are these things? I mean, when when you when you talk about something like plants, of course, I mean you know nature's managed to make these things infinitely scalable, and you see the amazing fractal patterns in some of these all all of these features that we see mathematically and we understand. But when we want to construct these things in the lab, I mean, often you know many labs around the world do this stuff, but they're atom by atom top down construction methods. I mean, what what are you doing specifically? That's that's a great question, and that's one of the main motivations for us using uh, carbon-based molecules or bio-inspired mm-hmm. molecules. Uh, one thing is their, their electronic properties, but the other thing is this uh, molecular recognition and self-assembly capabilities. Right. So uh, a great example is DNA. Mm-hmm. It has a beautiful nanoscale structure, so this uh, beautiful double-stranded helix, and it all results from self-assembly and intermolecular interactions. I, I, I think I heard hydrogen bonding uh, earlier in the show. So that's something we try to benefit from. Molecular recognition, uh, non-covalent, uh, metal-ligand interactions, that will be beneficial for scalability. Mm. One of the ch- things we try to do is not place one atom at a time. We can do it, but it's extremely time and energy consuming. We would like to benefit from the self-assembly capabilities of organic molecules to mm. synthesize materials from the bottom up. And, and, and that, it, is, that is scalable. It certainly seems as though in the biomedical fields this is starting to happen. You know, people are using E. coli for so many different processes to actually get things done as opposed to it in its own sense, but they're using it as a, as a delivery mechanism, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, so there, there seems to be a lot of possibilities there in terms of utilising what's already there in nature to do the job for us. Yeah. Exactly. So that's very much related to, to that mm. example. So I suppose this is more of a, a philosophical question, really, but it's it's more around, you know, you're talking about how these these natural structures kind of put themselves together and, and you're doing that on the atomic scale, but you, you want to be able to exploit that. Is that kind of effectively engineering life itself in some ways? Is that something that you guys think about and it's i mean it's a bit deep maybe to yeah. go into but <laughs> it's I a bit mean, deep for sunday morning yeah. really <laughs> yeah, before midday sorry shouldn't bring it up on a sunday morning no. should i but um no just in in the sense that you know you're talking about you know the fact that it's so time and labor intensive to to and energy intensive as well you know mm. if you're if you're wanting to for example create artificial photosynthesis and you you have to you know generate this atom by or molecule by molecule or atom by atom it's that takes a long time, and does it save as much energy as it, you know, uses? It uses? Mm. And the answer at the moment is probably no. But you know, by exploiting these structures, oh, the the way that that life naturally and biology naturally does it. I don't know this whole idea of of kind of creating life itself. Yeah, there's definitely a um, well. The way I like to see it, there's an idea of closing the loop, right? Mm. Uh, which is. You know, science, you can see it from the point of view of trying to enhance or uh, ad, um, 
let's say, adapt nature. Mm -hmm. uh, this has an angle of more, okay, let's look at what nature has been able to achieve um, through millions of years of evolution and see if we can inspire ourselves from that mm -hmm. and uh, develop technologies from it. Yeah. Augustine, before we let you go, uh, is there a material that is sort of on the, on the forefront that you guys will put out first, do you think, um, in, the, in the coming years? The centre's relatively new. I mean, is there one that you're going after first? Um, we have different materials we're working on, working on in parallel. Um, one material that we're trying to achieve in particular is based on the activities of the center and is this uh, topological insulator, mm -hmm. but um, based on organic, right. so carbon-based materials. So um, I don't know if I have time to describe what a topological insulator is, but it's basically just think of a material that's very good at conducting right. uh, electrons and at, even at room temperature. And there are uh, quantitative theoretical predictions that tell us we should be able to do it mm. with carbon-based materials or with little organic molecules similar to those found in nature. And we could benefit from this self-assembly uh, mm. protocols. And um, so that, that's definitely very exciting. Mm. Yeah, that sounds very cool. Well, thanks for coming in. And um, it's great to have this stuff working here in Melbourne. And the centre is a collaboration between a number of universities, isn't it? Swinburne, RMIT, Monash, is that... Oh. Uh, no, there's um, we're a whole bunch of universities. I, I had to make sure that I <laughs> remember the, <laughs> yeah. them all. But there, uh, there's UNSW. They're yep. not only uh, Victorian universities. Yeah. There's um, yes, uh, Swinburne, Monash, um, hmm. and uh, so we're almost twenty investigators within Australia and their teams. Hmm. But also, what's what's interesting is that we collaborate uh, with international partners. So it's right. it's definitely a Big, big effort. It's definitely a big effort and a very nice environment to yeah. work in. But it's great chatting to you, and um, we, we look forward to seeing some of these these things come out because it'd be great if Australia could really lead the way in some of these areas. And it sounds like you guys are having a good crack at it. And the, the bioengineered stuff is really interesting to me because I think you know there's so much to learn there. So thanks for coming in Triple R, and um, we'll chat again. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Dr. Augustin Schifrin is the Chief Investigator within Fleet and a Senior Lecturer in Physics and Astronomy, uh, in the School of Physics and Astronomy. You're probably not lecturing astronomy um, at Monash University. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyone can do it, it's not that hard. Uh, <laughs> now, Dr. Ailey, something has hit the news that's been messing with you. It's been messing with me majorly. <laughs> so this is... Um, People may have seen this around the traps, uh, particularly on social media over the last few days. This is about a new paper that's been published in a small but, you know, okay journal mm. called Progress in Biophysics and Molecular Biology. Now, this is about something called the Cambrian Explosion. So for those who are not aware of what the Cambrian Explosion is, basically this is the first massive explosion of multicellular life yeah. on Earth, uh, kind of 500-ish million years ago. Yeah, so there was a small number of species before yep. it yep. and a bucket load after That's it. right. So yeah. this is kind of the In time. In a short space of time. Absolutely. Very well. Relatively. Ge geological time scale yeah, yeah. a very short space of time. So yeah. we went from kind of these little sludgy things like slugs. slugs and stuff kind of cruising around on the bottom of the ocean to you know these big trilobites and fantastic yeah. giant like I don't stuff. Know, shark Good stuff. Cool like stuff. things. Yeah, exactly. So the current schools of thought is why was there this uh, explosion of life? Um, a mostly around, the, the current thoughts are mostly around uh, a very steep rise in oxygen at that time. 
And so, you know, questions about, well, did you reach some threshold and, and um, you know, other hypotheses are around predatory behaviour and oxygen-rich uh, oxygen environments um, basically getting organisms to the point where they could evolve, evolve and, and, mm. and be predators and that that kind of spurned off this, this evolutionary arms race and... All that kind of stuff. There was other other hypotheses. Uh, sorry, I can't say that word hypotheses. this morning. Hypotheses about the development of vision and the simple mm. eye, and could things seeing stuff yeah. actually of Pred course this predator prey relationships. Exactly, exactly, yep. all that stuff. But this this is a new paper that's come out that talks about uh, a non-terrestrial. Meaning cause. not from Earth. Not from Earth. So it's not the first paper on this particular No, topic. it's Wait, not the first paper I, on I've this I've seen stuff. this movie. It was one of the Predator yeah. ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the idea Good. is that life, uh, well, complex life, came to Earth basically on comets and stuff like that <laughs> and um, bombarded the Earth and, and that's what caused the Cambrian explosion. That idea is not new, but this new paper takes this to a whole new level. And the reason I wanted to talk about it is because... I think it's a fantastic reminder that the peer review process doesn't always work and is fallible um, because the stuff that's come out in this paper is, well, quite frankly, not, not robust, I'll put it that way. <laughs> that's a that's very so um, polite, polite yeah. way to say I that. thought you were going to say batshit. No, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. So yeah. I'll, I'll just read you one of the, yeah. the little paragraphs that come from this. They say, thus the possibility that cryopreserved squid and or octopus eggs, mm -hmm. okay, yeah. fertilised eggs, arrived in icy bolides, comets. comets, several hundreds of million years ago should not be discounted as that would be a parsimonious cosmic explanation for the octopus's sudden emergence on Earth circa 270 million years ago. Mm -hmm. So basically these guys are hypothesising that uh, octopus, or mm -hmm. cephalopods I think they're called, yep, cephalopods. Uh, came to Earth in cryopreserved eggs on comets, bombarded the Earth, and that's why uh, octopi, oh, not octopi, octopuses, Octopuses. And things like that are much more complex forms of life and quite different to what was around at the time. And uh, what's quite, your problem with this, Ailey? Quite frankly, <laughs> say what? <laughs> <laughs> okay, my problem with this is there is zero evidence. Yeah. Now, I mean, people are often, and, you know, I'm sure my colleagues sitting at this table who write scientific papers, it's perfectly okay to put somewhat speculative arguments in when you're trying to work out what's going on, you know, you kind of say, okay, well, it could be this, it could be this. But you've got to have the evidence to back that up. Right? So There's what's their evidence? There's got to be theory, there's got to be experimental here? stuff or whatever to back that up. Have you seen the an octopus? Yeah. <laughs> so there it only, doesn't look like it's well, from around here. There are that's only, not evidence, that's no, exactly. speculation, Dr. Shea. <laughs> exactly. And their only evidence is basically that um, cephalopods were quite <clears throat> advanced and different from um, all the other organisms <clears throat> at that time. And so they were saying, well, that means the genesis must have been from, from somewhere else. Um, the point is, though, that evolutionary biologists um, and biologists everywhere have already sequenced the genome of the octopus and the squid and whatever else and have shown that they are of terrestrial origin, yet the authors have conveniently... Uh, forgot that bit. Forgot that bit or excluded uh, that. Um, so, yeah, man, so look... It's, I wanted to say I could eat an alien now. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know. <laughs> but look, it, it's, it's, it's just... It's an interesting article. There's a whole lot of co-authors. There's a lot of controversy around it. Short <laughs> answer is octopuses are not from space. 
See, that's just disappointing. Yeah, yeah. it is disappointing. I but mean, it's it's like yeah. when they tried to knock out the Brontosaurus. That's right. Yeah, people didn't like that. No, mm. that's right. And it's back. Yeah, look, <laughs> I don't think octopuses are ever going to be from space. <laughs> look, it's just, yeah, but it's it's just that this did make the media rounds. Um, it has got published in a journal uh, when it shouldn't have. Uh, mm. All the, the evolutionary biology community is, is pretty up in arms about the fact that this has even been published in the first place. And it's just a reminder that the, the peer review process is fallible to these human, kind of human, human, human yeah, yeah. I suppose you could call them human errors. People have overlooked or, or yeah. there's been a, a stacking in the, the review right. process and in uh, in this case there's suggestions there were stacking in the editor. Uh, editor holds similar views yeah. and so they've kind of got friends to, to look at this. So um, just a reminder that that part of science can be fallible sometimes. To be so we vigilant. Need to, be, to be vigilant and to be careful about what we read. Yeah. So. Well, and if you're going to poke something and say it's from outer space, it's got to be the platypus, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I know. I mean, well, it's some weird shit, right? Exactly. I mean, you look at it and you go, what the that's hell? That's right. That's right. What'd that come that's from? Right. Well, like, this is, maybe this is why in science fiction films all our aliens look like octopuses. I mean, I'm, maybe this is yeah, art true. imitating life, imitating art. Or, or subconsciously, the authors of this paper that's have right. seen mm, those children's cartoons. Right. Yes. And somehow... And think that's evidence. And yeah. think that's evidence. Well, <laughs> yeah. I could make a climatologist joke, but I won't because there's two of them in the studio and they're evidence-based. We're much stronger than you. Because <laughs> <laughs> you guys have got some evidence, apparently, haven't you? Oh, haven't just you? some. I mean, you've you know, got just, some. Oh, just a teeny tiny you got some stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, Keep changing your mind, like... though. No, we don't. <laughs> I think I'm pretty sure that evidence has been pretty solid for the last 150 years. It's so years. easy to fire them up, folks, yeah, but um, we, we do have to trust them. But next time you're eating calamari, mm. think of spare our, a thought. Think of our... Uh, for cephalopod overlords. Yeah. <laughs> You're eating their children. Space. That's right. Uh, they will well. come for you on comets. Yeah, I think yeah, that's interesting stuff. And you mm. know, yeah, we we can we can tease, but um, tease, in this case, there's is... probably enough evidence to warrant the teasing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so, and the genetic evidence is absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and of course, for many years, uh, evolutionary uh, deniers used the eye. That mm. is the argument. That's mm. been ditched as Debunked. well. So That's right. Sorry. So be careful what you read, people, and yeah, um, yeah make Look sure you're evidence. very critical yeah. in your appraisal of things like that. We have to say goodbye to uh, hand over to Edith. Thanks so much for listening to an hour of science, folks. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fantastic Sunday, and we will talk to you again next week. And we're going to give a glass of scotch to Dr. Daly. She'll be okay. Thanks for listening to Triple R. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.